Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. Chapter 15 is where we're going to spend most of our time. We're uh, teaching a series that we've entitled Stories in Genesis. I want to talk to you about Abraham's covenant with God in Genesis chapter 15. But really, before we get there, we've got to tie it into some things that we've already said and and, uh, cover a few high spots of uh, some things that we've already covered. I think you'll understand once we start doing it why we're backing up a little bit. We know that uh, last time we were together, we looked at the story of Abraham and Lot and about how that God told Abraham to leave his family and to follow him to a land which he told him to go to, and he took his family with him. He delayed him. His family delayed him, and his, uh, his reluctance to do exactly what God said to do delayed some of the blessings, and, and Abraham was kind of feeling his way around, finding the place of obedience, complete obedience, I should say, it's not that he was in disobedience, it's just that he wasn't following God to the letter of what he said. But every time he took a step toward God to obey exactly what he told him to do, there was something more that God gave him of himself. Now, Lot was his nephew, uh, Abraham's brother's son. His brother had died, and so his son was, uh, or his uh, nephew, Lot, was treated pretty much by Abraham as a father, as, as much as we can tell. And you remember the story about how th- that when they came into the land that God told them to go to, then a famine arose in the land, and they went into Egypt. Now, the reason I'm bringing up Lot is because Lot is, the, as far as we know, the only reason that Lot is recognized or told us, the story of Lot is told us in the Bible, is to be a contrast to Abraham. It says in Genesis chapter 13 that uh, as Abraham and Lot's herds and flocks and all this stuff began to multiply, that uh, there arose a dissension between Abraham's servants and Lot's servants. And so Abraham said, look, there's no reason for us to fight. Look at the land before you. You take what you want and I'll take what's left, so to speak. And in Genesis chapter 13, this is where Lot speaks, or where Abraham speaks to him and says, uh, verse 9, is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou will take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou will depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and behold all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord. Now notice the next thing that he says. If we stopped right there, we'd think that he was saying that the, that the plain looked like the Garden of Eden. But notice the next thing that it says and shows us what he thinks the Garden of the Lord looked like. Even as the Garden of the Lord, like unto the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, the one from the other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent. Notice that he pitched his tent. Lot starts off looking for a place for his flocks and his herds to, to graze and so forth. And pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Now the contrast, the reason that we have the story of Lot in the Bible, as I said, is to show us the contrast. And the contrast between Abraham and Lot is seen almost immediately. We made uh, reference to, to the, uh, the fact and uh, if you weren't here with us, it might do you some good to, to go back and hear the entirety of the message. But where the famine arose and Abraham took Lot and the rest of his family down into Egypt, we don't have any record that God told him to go. It says that he prospered when he was in Egypt and he came back and he had many flocks and herds and so forth. But he put himself in a position of compromise when he was in Egypt. Egypt is always spoken of in the Bible as a type of the world and a type of sin. And it seems to me that if God was telling him or instructing him to go to Egypt, the Bible would have said so, but it doesn't. But apparently, and again, this is just speculation. You judge it for yourself. But apparently Lot looked at the famine that was coming or, or already existed in the land which God told him to go to and, and said to himself something like, well, things are better down in Egypt. Why don't we go there for a while until this famine is over? In other words, he picked financial gain, provision or well-being, above exactly what God might tell him to do. That's not that God didn't tell him to go. We just don't have any record that Abraham even asked. The problem is Egypt got in them, much more so in Lot than in, than uh, Abram. But when Lot looks for a place to go, he looks for something that looks like Egypt. And so he winds up going to a place that he already knew was, uh, was Wicked City. It tells us on purpose the condition of Sodom and Gomorrah before, before Lot ever chose to go there. And yet he chose to go anyway. Lot is the kind of Christian 
that chooses earthly things and material things over putting God first. Now, without going into a lot of detail, let's kind of fast forward and see the, uh, the entirety of the story of Lot. Lot stays in uh, the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. First, he goes to the plains, winds up in the city. And it says that, uh, that there were five kings, or four kings, I'm sorry, that joined together as an alliance and overtook the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says for 12 years, Sodom and Gomorrah had to pay tribute to Cheddar, Cheddar Laomer, King Cheddar. So for 12 years, while Lot is there, they're paying tribute. Now, he could have left any time he wanted to, but he didn't. He stayed in a place that had been conquered and was paying tribute to evil kings, and the wickedness in the city was getting greater and greater. Now, when, those, uh, when Sodom and Gomorrah rebelled against King Cheddar, then it tells us, that the kings, the four kings came together and took Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and all of his stuff and took them away for spoils. When Abram hears about this, this is Genesis chapter 14. When Abram hears about this, he takes the 318 hired servants that were born in his house and he turns them into an army and he goes out against the kings and he wins a great battle. And we'll talk a little bit more about this victory and about the, uh, the military aspect of it in just a few minutes. But he comes back from that victory, and that's where he meets Melchizedek. And he pays tithes unto him. We'll talk more about that as well. But what does Lot do? Abraham saves Lot, regains all of his stuff, meaning Lot's stuff. Abraham makes a determination, makes a commitment to God that he's not going to take anything from anybody. So he didn't prosper from it, except what his men need and eat on the, during the uh, campaign. But what does Lot do? Lot goes right back to Sodom and Gomorrah. And as a matter of fact, by the time the cities are destroyed over in Genesis chapter 19, Lot has now gone from pitching his tent toward the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the plains near the city, to where now he's an alderman sitting in the gate. In other words, he's a big cheese in town. And I have no doubt whatsoever that his uncle, sparing the city and a lot of the people and so forth, winning the great victory over King Cheddar, I have no doubt that that's part of the influence that he gained in the city. My point is very simply this. Lot takes one step after another for his own well-being materially. Nowhere along the way does he stop and say, you know, Abraham, this idea about me and you separating, I don't like that at all. Look, I don't want to be equal with you, but let me just come live near you. And if my stuff starts increasing so much that the, the servants begin to quarrel again, I'll get rid of my servants. Because I don't want to be separated from you. You're the one that's blessed. He had an opportunity. And had he had any good sense, in my opinion, he would have done something to that effect. Don't you agree? But he doesn't. He takes one step after another, further and further and further into the world. And every step he takes into the world is a step away from God. You know what the end of Lot is? Well, we know that Sodom and Gomorrah, the two cities are destroyed. It says that, uh, that Lot winds up going up with his family into the mountains, the mountain city of Zoar, lives there for a while. He won't go into the mountains themselves because he asked the angel, he said, I can't live in the mountains. I'll die in the mountains. Let me go to one of these cities. But he doesn't stay in the city. He winds up just Lot. His wife turns to a pillar of salt. His son-in-laws are destroyed in town when the cities are destroyed. He winds up living in a cave with no possessions whatsoever with his two daughters who get him drunk have children in an incestuous relationship. One becomes the king of the Moabites. The other becomes the king of Ammonites. Every step Lot took, because he put the things of the world in his own financial and material well-being ahead of everything else, every step he took cost him everything that he wanted to have. And that's the end of Lot. Now, chapter 14 tells us about Abraham coming back from meeting Melchizedek. Actually, I'll tell you what, let's start in chapter 15, then we'll back up and make a couple of comments to chapter 14, some of the things that happened. After these things, chapter 15, verse 1, after these things, now the after these things have reference to two specific events. One was the military victory that he won over King Cheddar, and the other was the comment that he said before uh, the king of Sodom, let me find it, uh, verse 22, 
well, let me back up to verse 21. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to yourself. Verse 22, And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up my hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, that's a shoestring, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. And then he says, except the things that my men have eaten on the way. In other words, the two things that chapter 15, verse 1 refers to is the military victory and the commitment that Abram has made before God. Now, this is something new. This is something that he has discovered after he came back from Egypt or maybe during the time that he was in Egypt. But he comes back from Egypt recognizing God's my source, God's my friend, God's my supply no matter where I am, no matter what, I'm, what conditions that I'm in. He comes back with the understanding that God would have taken care of him in the famine just as well as he took care of him in Egypt, and he would have been better off never going into Egypt. Folks, there's a great lesson there. You never win going into Egypt. I don't care if it's more financially advantageous to you or what perks or benefits there look like they're going to be, but you never, it never pays. You never win by going into Egypt, which is always a type of sin in the world. So Abram says, I've made a vow unto the Lord that I'm not going to take anything from you. In other words, he says, I'm, I've determined and I've lifted my hand toward heaven. That signifies a vow. I'm determined that what I wind up with will be what God has for me and only what God has for me. It's a spiritual commitment. So it says, after these things, verse 1, chapter 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision. Now, right there, we're going to have to decide what a vision is. Because there are a lot of things. I mean, if we think of a vision, a lot of people think of, um, you know, just an imagination, something similar to an imagination, an inward or internal event. And that's all there is to it. But the Bible tells us there's more to it than that. In fact, the Bible says that there are three types of visions. One is a spiritual vision. One is a trance. And the other is what we might call an open vision. Now, spiritual vision is the type of vision that Paul had on the road to Damascus. It tells us about the light that shined around his, him and his company, brighter than the noonday sun. They were fallen from the animals they were riding. Paul heard a voice. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He goes on and tells the story. It says, after all this was, had taken place, and God tells him to go in the city, and it will be told to him what to do once he gets there. It says, and when their eyes were opened, and when their eyes were opened. So all this happened while everybody's eyes were shut. That's a spiritual vision. A trance is in Acts chapter 10, where it tells us about Peter and, uh, going up on the housetop, the rooftop, to pray while they're fixing lunch. And while he's there, it says he fell into a trance. Now, a trance can be defined as your physical sense is suspended. You're not unconscious, but your physical senses are suspended. This is most probably what Paul was referring to when he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I can't tell. That was probably a trance because his physical senses were suspended such that he couldn't tell. Now, if anybody had been there with him, they'd have been able to tell. They'd have been able to tell whether his body left the earth or not. But he said, apparently he was alone, I couldn't tell whether I was in the body or not. Well, Peter saw the vision. You remember about uh, he fell in the trance and saw the vision. And you remember how that he saw the, the sheet coming down, down by the four corners and had all kinds of clean and unclean animals. And the Lord told him, rise, slay, and eat, and so forth. The third type of a vision is an open vision. It's where you see into the spirit realm just like you see into the physical realm. Now, there are some examples of that. Most of them are Old Testament examples. And in, uh, in many cases, God had to deal with men like that and un, that were unspiritual, meaning un, uh, those that weren't born again who were not new creatures in Christ Jesus because that couldn't happen, of course, until after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. So there are some examples in the Old Testament where the Lord appeared under certain ones. He appeared unto Abraham and so forth. But this time it specifically says the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to him in a vision. So what are we to assume that that is? The reason that it's important for us to decide is because the whole chapter is a part of this vision. Now later on in the chapter it's going to talk about the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Now if we decide that this was a spiritual vision then we'd have to conclude 
that Abraham didn't literally take the ram and the she-goat and the heifer and divide them in half and, and so forth. He didn't literally chase away the fowls of the air to protect the sacrifice. Well, I don't believe that, do you? I believe that literally happened. Well, then if it literally happened and it's all a vision, then I think we have to conclude that the Bible is talking about an open vision. Because if his physical senses are suspended, then how would he know that he's getting to the animals that God told him to get? After these things, the word of the Lord came unto him in a vision and said to him, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Can I ask you a question? What is God telling Abram not to be afraid of? If he has just defeated five enemy kings or four enemy kings, King Cheddar and his alliance, with 318 men born in his own house, what has Abraham got to be afraid of? Wouldn't that be the time where God said, you can do it? Just like I was with you on this, I'll be with you on everything else. Abram, you're the man. That's not what he tells him. He tells him, fear not, I am your shield, your protector. First time it shows up where God says, don't be afraid. And the only time, or the first time, that God ever shows up and identifies himself as the protector of his people. Why is that? Well, it's because we misinterpret what happened in the victory over the king, kings, that uh, the enemies of Sodom and Gomorrah. See, the Bible tells us in chapter 14 that Abram took his 318 servants and he divided them, divided them against the kings that took Lot and his stuff. But now these four kings are not grouped up together like we might all sit together in the, in the sanctuary here because there are four separate armies with all the trappings of the kings with the armies and so forth. There are four separate camps. And these four separate camps have most probably divided the spoils of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham takes his 318 servants by night, a surprise attack, nighttime raid, against the, the camp that's holding Lot and his stuff. Lot and his, his family and his people and whatever else is his. That's all Abraham's after. Abraham's not after killing kings. He's not after trying to defeat the kings so they can gain their, their lands. If that were the case, then why didn't he just go and take Elam? King Cheddar was the king of Elam. Why didn't he go take Shinar? Because that king would be defeated too. Why didn't he just go take Tidal's king we don't know what he was king of it says he was king of nations and the fourth guy whatever his name is why did Abraham just go take possession of those cities and those lands now what he did he, he performed a nighttime raid covert operation and he killed King Chedorlaomer and took all the stuff but the other kings have not been defeated now the Bible, there is a scripture that says after the slaughter well, what's the slaughter? It doesn't mean all the kings were slaughtered. It means their attacks have been stopped. Now, King Chedorlaomer was the head king. He was the one that created the alliance. So if he's been destroyed and the other three kings are left, what do you think the political state of this, condition, of this alliance is going to be? Somebody's going to have to decide who's in charge now. The reality is the other three kings are left with their armies in their own camps. The, real, the bigger reality is that Abraham has now made a lot of enemies. And that's why it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, don't be afraid, Abram. Just because you've got three enemy kings that are after you now, just because you've got people that are stronger than you that now want to regroup at some point, probably delay them a little bit, but they'd regroup at some point and try to regain possessions that they lost maybe come out against the one that defeated their their friend the king of elam god says fear not i'm your shield now why is this the first time that it shows up abraham's been faced with uh, threatening situations before when he went down into egypt he talked to his wife and just saying that she was his sister because he was afraid that he might be killed why now goes back to chapter 14 verse 22 and Abram said to the king of Sodom 
I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the Possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from thee a thread, even to a shoestring, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. Remember in verse 20, he gave tithes to Melchizedek, who is not only a king, but a priest, which means a royal priest. He's a type of Jesus. The reason chapter 15 starts off the way that it does is because it's showing what God says that he will do for Abram because of the commitment that Abram has now made to him. Literally, fear not. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward is the blessing of the tither. God's saying, you don't have to be afraid, Abram. I'll protect you. You're mine. You made a vow unto me. You kept it. You're mine. What's happened? Abram's learned to follow God. He's learned to follow God by the letter of what God tells him to do. Not just sort of follow him and put your own interpretation, add your own stuff to it. But now he's completely, 100% in the place that God wanted him to be. Spiritually, physically, materially, financially. He's offering tithes. He's giving of his own possessions because of his commitment to God. And God says, don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. Can you see it? What's next? Well, God and Abraham are talking in this vision, which I believe is an open vision, must be, in my thinking. Abram said, Lord God, what will thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him for righteousness. A couple of things I want to point out. First of all, Abraham is not talking about material possessions to God. Now that he and God, and, and apparently Abram recognizes things are different now. When God appears and says, fear not, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward, Abram seems to understand this is a different relationship than we had before. This is not go where I tell you to go and I'll bless you. Now, this is something that's real. What's caused him to come to that realization, we don't know. Maybe it's just spiritual growth. Maybe it's just uh, a developed trust in God. We don't know. But we do know that things are different from Abram's standpoint because Abram is not now looking for material possessions. He's not even talking about the land. He wants to know about heirs. Now, what do we know from Galatians chapter 3 about the heirs or the seed of Abraham? The real seed of Abraham is Jesus, right? Abram would have no way to know that. Abram wouldn't know at this point what God's plan for him or for his life or for his posterity would be. But God knows. God's planned it all along. And so when Abram starts talking to him about posterity, notice what the change that God undertakes looks like. He takes him to where he can look to the stars. Now, let me remind you of something. In chapter 13, after Abram and, and uh, Lot separate, and he gets Abram in the place that he wanted him to be all the time, he said in chapter 13, verses 14 and 15 and 16, And the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed be numbered. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about his physical descendants. And he says, your physical descendants, which we know of as the nation of Israel, will be like the dust of the earth, innumerable. But when he starts talking about his plan for Abram, his seed, which we know of, revealed in the New Testament as Jesus, he didn't talk about the dust of the earth. He talks about the stars of heaven. 
chapter five, or chapter 15, verse 5, he brought him forth abroad and said, look now toward heaven. He didn't tell him to look toward the land. He didn't say, I'll show you the land in every direction. This is the land for your seed to inherit. He's talking about a spiritual seed now. Paul makes the distinction between spiritual Israel and physical Israel or natural Israel. He says this, comparing the two or contrasting the two, he said, not all Israel is Israel. In other words, he's saying not all the physical descendants of Israel are the children of God, which is the part of the seed of Abraham, the seed of Jesus. And he brought him forth and said, look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, so shall thy seed be. Now, I don't, I'll take for granted that you understand and remember that in chapter 4, where it talks about the example of Abraham's faith when he was 100 years old, which he's not yet. This will be several years, maybe 10 years or so down the road, 10 to 15 maybe. When he was about 100 years old, he took hope without any physical evidence, without any natural circumstance to put hope in. He hoped in the promise of God, and the promise of God was, so shall your seed be. In other words, it's a reference to this verse of Scripture in chapter 15, what is it, verse 5, where he says, look to the heavens and number the stars. He's understanding, or comes to the understanding at least, that that's the promise to hang on to. Chapter, uh, verse 6 is interesting because it says that he believed in God and God counted unto him his righteousness. Can I ask you a question? If he's just now believing God, why did he leave Ur of the Chaldees? In fact, Hebrews chapter eight, 11, verse 8, tells us that by faith, Abraham left the Ur of the Chaldees, Chaldees, however you say it. He left his home and went to a land that he didn't know. Why does the Bible only tell us now about Abraham's faith? Has Abraham not been in faith up to this point? Well, according to Hebrews eleven eight, he was. Why then does it tell us that he, Abraham, believed in God? Excuse me, his name's not Abraham yet, but you, you know who I'm talking about. If I slip up between Abram and Abraham, I'm still talking about the same guy. Why does the Bible tell us about Abram's faith in God relative to this verse 6 and not before? Because he ties faith in God to the reference to Jesus being the seed of Abraham. I love how this reads in the, in the uh, original Hebrew. It said, and he stayed upon the Lord. Instead of believed in the Lord, it said, and he stayed upon the Lord. And God counted it to him for righteousness. Folks, that's what faith is. It's staying upon the Lord. Not being moved, not wavering, not going back and forth. Now Abram does something else. And I'll, I'll refer you back to uh, verse 2. Abram said, Lord God, this is the first time where he's called Lord God, Lord Adonai, Adonai in Scripture. And he asked him a question. Now, we're not to interpret this question as being a sign of unbelief. Because if it were unbelief, God would have rebuked him or corrected him or something. But he doesn't. This is a conversation that God is having with his friend. It's an open conversation. And Abram's is trying to find out from God what's the plan. He does the next thing, uh, does the same thing again in the next couple of verses. After it says in verse 6, And he believed in God, in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. He stayed himself upon the Lord, in other words. Verse 7, And he said unto him, God said unto Abram, I am the Lord that brought thee forth out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Abram said, Lord God, Whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? This is not a sign of unbelief. This is not him saying, well, how do I know? Really? The stars of the sky, land to inherit, really? How can we be sure? That's not what's going on. Abraham understands that this is a different relationship. He understands that this is the next step in the relationship that he's developed with the creator of heaven and earth. So he asked for a pledge. That's what, what, how shall I know, or what sign will you give me? That's what it means. It means a pledge. Now, a pledge is something that is given as a guarantee. He's asking for the guarantee. So what does the Lord do? Tells him to make a covenant. Notice how God answers. Verse 8, And he said unto him, God said unto Abram, Take me 
I want you to understand this. The covenant is for God, not for Abraham. Take me, a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Can I ask a question? How does Abraham know anything about what to do when you make a covenant? Notice it's not God saying, take me a heifer and divide it. Here's how it works. Lay one half on one side and one half on the other side. Make a walkway in between where the blood is that you spill when you kill the animal. Then take a she-goat, put half of it on this side and half of it on that side. Take a ram, put half of it on this side and that side. By now you should have a pathway that's full of blood. And then take two birds, two turtle doves and a pigeon, whatever it is. How does Abraham know? If God's not telling him, then we have to assume that he already understood. Folks, you need to know this. Covenants did not start with God. At least Israel's covenants didn't start with God. Covenants began with God in the Garden of Eden. But man had developed covenants all along. And as a matter of fact, there's a lot of historical evidence that shows that God did this in the same pattern that the Chaldeans were accustomed to because that's where Abraham came from. This is a Chaldean pattern for cutting a covenant. Now, let me talk to you about the difference between covenants and alliances. King Chedorlaomer and the other four king, the other three kings made alliances together. Alliances never were covenants. Because if one king passed off the scene, history is full of situations where the king that you were, the king of a certain nation that you used to be in alliance with, found a reason or a way to break the alliance later on and so forth. Alliances were just political conveniences or military conveniences. I'm considering those to be one and the same. Covenants were between tribes and people. Covenants were where you pledged yourself to another tribe, and it was a lifetime pledge. It could not be broken without penalty of great, great, great curse and adversity. So when Abram is asking for a sign, what sign will you give me? He's asking for the pledge of their relationship, and God says, let's make a covenant. But he identifies the covenant's not for Abram. The covenant's for me. Take me a heifer. Now the four animals are the, the animals that he uses and tells Abram to gather are not wild animals he has to go catch. Each one of these are servants of man. And each one of these refers to Jesus. The first where he says, Take me a heifer. The heifer refers to the strength of Jesus. The she goat is used in the Bible as a sin offering. The ram is used in Leviticus as a sign of consecration, the, the animal to use to signify consecration. And the turtle doves and the pigeon, or a turtle dove and a young pigeon, indicates animals from heaven, from the sky. The three years references the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry before he was sacrificed. Now, folks, there's something else that you need to keep in mind here, and I want you to turn with me over to Galatians chapter 3. Any of this making any sense to you? No? Okay, we'll just quit here then. Sorry for taking your time. Galatians chapter 3. Paul's writing to a church, actually a group of churches in the region of Galatia that have been infiltrated by Judaizers. He's come and taught grace and the sacrifice of Jesus and, and salvation by faith. And the Judaizers here along with most of the other places that he went to, came in after the fact and tried to tell people, well, that Jesus stuff is great. Thank God Jesus paid the price for us, but we still need to keep the law of Moses. So Paul starts off in chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, Oh, foolish Galatians. The word foolish is kind of kind in the translation. It literally means stupid people. Oh, you stupid people, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth and crucified among you. This only what I learn of you. Receives you the spirit by the works of the law. Or by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish. Having begun in the spirit. Are you now made perfect by the flesh. You got saved by faith. Not the law of Moses. Why do you want to add the law of Moses to that. 
Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it yet be in vain? He that therefore that ministers to you the Spirit and works miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Is it the law of Moses that makes the Holy Ghost work? Or is it faith in God? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Verse 8 is what I want you to see. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, the Gentiles meaning, the heathen meaning Gentiles, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. In other words, Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost, and this has to, be, it has to come by revelation, that Abram, Abraham came to the understanding of what God's plan was about the Messiah being born of him. Where did he find out? He finds out in the vision when the covenant is made. Let me show you. He talks about things that reference the, uh, the sacrifice of Jesus. But this is not a sacrifice. There's no mention of burning of the animals, which would be necessary if it wasn't making a sacrifice. This is a covenant principle or covenant pattern. So he took unto him, verse, eight, verse 10, he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the verge divided he not. It's a clear indication that Abraham knew the principles and the patterns of making a covenant. And not only that, but it indicates that that's what he was asking for when he says, how will I know? And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, God said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward they shall come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun was going down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed through, passed between the pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river Euphrates, the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites, the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims, and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Gergesites and the Jebusites. Now, let's make some comments. I know I'm out of time, but give me just a few minutes to finish this up. I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, it says that Abraham's only part in this, which breaks the pattern of human covenants. If Abraham understood and he had to, since he understood the pattern of making covenants because he was a Chaldean and this is the Chaldean pattern, there would be a requirement of both people to walk through this middle section now that's covered with blood. There would be a requirement for one person to walk the length for him to stand on opposite ends of the, the pile of animals that have been divided. For, one to, for Abram to stand here, for God to stand on the other side, for Abram to walk toward God and turn around and come back, for God to walk toward Abraham, turn around and go back. That would have been the pattern and the requirement. Abram doesn't do that. Abram's one requirement in this is that he has to keep the birds from getting to the animals, the divided animals. What does that signify? It signifies two things. It's, well, two parts of the really the same thing. It signifies that you are going to have enemies to these covenant provisions. And the work, your work, since you're Christ and the seed of Abraham, your work is a work of faith to prevent the enemies, in this case the fowls of the air, which typifies the devil in every way that he works, to keep the enemy from stealing that which signifies the covenant provision that you have. That's his only job. Now the other part of it is that which represents death comes upon Abram. The deep sleep and the horror that comes upon him, that represents death. Now, what happens when that takes place? Abram 
in some way or another, and still this is part of the vision, this deep sleep and horror comes upon him. God does several things. He tells him about the future. Now, folks, you need to understand something. And that is, you remember how Jesus said, I'll give you another comfort. I'll pray the Father and I'll give you another comfort that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither know him, but you know him. And he says, one of the works he says of the Holy Ghost, and he will show you things to come. I have yet to meet more than a handful of people that really rely on that part of the work of the Holy Ghost effectively. But that's a part of the covenant relationship you've got with God to show you things to come. Now, Abraham's concern was his family, his seed, his posterity, his heirs, if you will. And so what does God do? He shows him the future of his heirs. He tells them about the time they're going to spend in Egypt. He says, let me read it so I make sure to get it exactly right. Verse 13, he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. Now remember what verse 8 was all about, why this started? Abram's asking for a pledge. Abram said to the Lord, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And God tells him, first thing, you will inherit it, your seed will inherit it, but not without suffering. Let me read to you another scripture that this corresponds to, and that's in Romans chapter 8. Should have had this already ready. Sorry. Romans chapter 8. Verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. That we are the children of God. Why are we the children of God? Because we're Christ and Abraham's seed. And if children then heirs. Heirs of God. We're the ones that Abraham was being told about. before the, uh, Back in Genesis 15. And if children then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. A lot of people want to pass over that suffering part. And a lot of people misidentify what the suffering is supposed to be. A lot of people think the suffering is sickness and disease or poverty or affliction or something like that. It's not. It's simply saying that there will be adversity that we'll experience here on the li- in this life. We will experience tribulation. But Jesus said, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. In other words, there is suffering, there is difficulty, there, is, there are circumstances and adversity that we'll experience in life for the purpose of learning to trust God for deliverance. That's the first thing God tells him about his seed. He said they'll go into a land that they're strangers in and they shall serve them. They shall also afflict them 400 years. Now, Exodus 12 verse 40 says that they served there or didn't serve there. It says that they spent 430 years in Egypt. Some people look at that and say, well, see, there's a discrepancy in the Bible. Some people say, well, God's just speaking in round numbers 400 years. Folks, God does not round number a guy. God is very exact about what he does. What it literally means is this. Remember when Israel went down into Egypt because Joseph was prime minister? There were 30 years that they served in Egypt but weren't afflicted. The Bible tells us that a new Pharaoh came along that didn't remember Joseph doesn't mean that he didn't have knowledge of him. It means that they didn't take into account or care that Joseph held the position of honor with the previous Pharaoh. So they were slaves for 400 years, but they were 430 years altogether in Egypt. Next thing he says, and that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. Well, we know that was true. That sure came to pass. And afterward they shall come out with great substance. Psalm 105 I think it's verse 37 said they came forth with silver and gold. There was not one people among them. God's telling me exactly the way it was going to be. Showing them the future. Because that's what he's asked. He said, how shall I know that I shall inherit it? Well, let me tell you about your inheritors. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The, um, the Bible says specifically that there were four generations. Levi was the first generation. His son Kohath, I think it was, was the next son, Amran, was the, the grandson of, of Levi, and the, his, son was Mo, his sons were Moses and Aaron, four generations exactly. Precisely what God said. 
But the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not full. And it shall come to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between the pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now, let me, let's talk about this. We talked about the, in the natural covenant, both people have to walk. Abraham doesn't walk. He's in this great deep sleep that represents death. He knows specifically that it's not going to happen in his lifetime because God said you'll be buried in a good old age and all these things will happen afterwards. So he knows that this association with death represents the end of his life for the sake of God bringing about his plan. He knows it's not going to happen in his lifetime. But when Abraham awakes from this thing that represents death, it's a type of the resurrection. And he is resurrected into a covenant experience. Now, how can the covenant example of the covenant pattern be fulfilled if Abram doesn't walk? Notice it says a a smoking furnace and a burning lamp. Those were the two things, the two elements that tells us that God represented himself to with the children uh, children of Israel when Moses was leading them out of Egypt. The pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. These are the two things, the two elements. Apparently, Jesus appears as one and God appears as the other. God makes a covenant with himself through Jesus. Abraham is just the beneficiary, but Jesus is his representative. Now, here's the, diff- here's the change. It says, verse 18, And in that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. And then he gives the boundaries of it. I'm going to remind you back in chapter 13 and verse 15, or verse 14, It said, The Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward, southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which thou seest to thee, will I give it. It's a promise for the future. And to thy seed forever. Chapter 15, verse 18, it says, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Notice the change, Unto thy seed have I given this land. I want you to notice something, folks. The seed of Abraham has a covenant where God says, I've already done the work. Your job is to shoo away the fowls of the air to keep them from taking away the provisions of the parts of the covenant. That's the work of faith. That's Abraham's covenant with God. Hallelujah. Galatians chapter 3, we'll close with this. Verse 13, it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That, or so that, here's the reason Jesus did that, so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Verse 29, and if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, natural Israel has a geographic Covenant blessing, covenant, uh, well, you can't even call it a covenant promise. They have been given in the terms of the covenant God made with Abraham, their natural father. They've been given land. And folks, you know as well as I do that the whole world is fighting over that land. It's the only stretch of ground that the world fights over like they do. Nobody, nowhere is the rest of the world lined up against a small country about the size of Rhode Island or New Jersey take their land and every peace deal every middle east peace deal every whatever that people want to propose always comes down to the same thing and that is if israel will just give up land now i don't know what side of the issue you come down on and depending on what side of the issue you come down on i can tell you what your educational experience is because people that go to college come out with this pro-palestinian idea that the spirit of the world promotes Now, whether that's your idea or not, doesn't matter to me one way or the other because the only thing that I know is God said the land belongs to them from point A to point B to point C to point D. That's the natural inheritance of Israel. But you've got a spiritual inheritance. 
You've got a spiritual inheritance. I don't live in the nation of Israel. Probably never will be living in the, the boundaries of the territory of Israel. So what's my promise? My promise and my covenant blessing is everything that Jesus accomplished for us through his sacrifice. I've got the same promise of provision. I've got the same promise of the tither, fear not. I'm your shield. I'm your exceeding great reward. We as Gentiles have the same promise, the same blessing, the same benefits as natural Israel had. We just have different land. But remember why God gave those promises and made that covenant with Abraham. Because he put everything else behind his vow to God. That's the way it's supposed to be, folks. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the covenant that you chose to make with us because we belong to Jesus. Thank you, Father, for revealing to us what that means for revealing to us the limitlessness of your love and your mercy to take care of us, to provide for us, to protect us, and to see after us. Father, I pray that each person under the sound of my voice would, if they have not already done so, make the same commitment and covenant with you that Abraham did. We'll only accept what is of you, Father. We'll only take what is of you and not the things of the world. We'll put everything behind our commitment to you. And we'll be satisfied with nothing less than all that you've provided for us. Lord, we won't chase the things of the world. But instead, we'll pursue you and your righteousness. We'll let you take care of the rest. Just like with Abraham... You promised that you'd more than make it up to him when he turned his back on the things of the world and the spoils that the victory, military victory would bring. We thank you, Father, for doing the same for us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Amen. Thanks for being with us. You're dismissed.